welcome to Comic Club, your friendly neighborhood comic book podcast. I am your host, Blaine McGaffigan, and I am joined, as always, by Adam. Is he a man or is he a mouse? Cook. The mouse is in the house. Great to be here, Blaine. We're streaming today live from Rego Park in Queens. Quick warning, everybody. We will be spoiling this month's comic, so proceed with caution. Adam, take it away. What did we read this month? Well, this month we read Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Mouse shows the story of the author himself interviewing his father about his real experiences as a Polish Jew and Holocaust survivor, using a bevy of postmodern storytelling techniques and employing anthropomorphic characters to represent Jews as mice, Germans as cats, and Poles as pigs. So, Adam... You mentioned last time when we did our first impressions that this was your first time reading this. I'd love to kind of hear, you know, you've heard about Mouse. Everybody knows this is a seminal graphic novel. What was kind of your take? Was it what you expected? Um, How did it live up to kind of the expectations? Thinking about it, I didn't really have great expectations about it, like in the sense that I had a large idea of what was going to happen. I just knew that it was a Holocaust survivor story. And I feel like just knowing that in and of itself kind of tells you the tone. You know it's going to be um, a really heavy story, and it was really heavy subject matter. They didn't shy away from it at all. They leaned right into it, and you know it's a brutal, heartbreaking, terrifying story, but told with so much empathy and it was so revealing and the author really put himself in this work in a way that I've just, I don't know if I've experienced with other comics. Agreed. And, you know, there's kind of, there's a, there's a world in which he depicts this all insanely heroically, especially his father, because his father's journey through the Holocaust is, like you said, horrific, terrible, but he is incredibly resourceful in what he does throughout the course of this. And, you know, they say multiple times that a lot of the reasons he they came out of this was luck. You know, they say, you know, it's luck. A lot of times you don't know. Some people got lucky, some people didn't. But whenever you see the things that Vladik does to help provide for his family, to save up food, to um, store jewels and all these crazy things that he does and the decisions he makes. So there's the heroic side of Vladek, but then there's the present day where you see both art and his father portrayed in very realistic ways that shows their relationship isn't perfect. Vladik isn't a perfect man, even though, you know, coming through this, this didn't make him, um, you know, maybe any better or any worse. He's still a man um, who has his own sort of feelings about the world. And Art himself, he depicts himself as, you know, sleeping in, smokes a ton. He, he gets very impatient with his father. So it was very vulnerable in that way. Yeah, I think that those scenes that are in their present day, you know, where it's Art actually interviewing Vladik, were so important to really humanizing Vladik and really grounding his story in reality, where you see it's not just this like make-believe story that existed you know, in the 30s, but this is a real person. And yeah, there are things about him that are funny. And, you know, he's likes to, you know, argue with the grocery store clerks or whatever it is, these kinds of real life details that bring him back down to reality and make you know that, oh, this was just a normal person. These these were just normal people that went through this horrific saga. And, you know, they come out on the other side, and they're still people. They still have these incredibly like you might think of them as petty but those are like incredibly human moments yeah i mean there's it it ranges from petty and you know strange all the way to even his own racism and biases at the at the end of the novel as they're riding in a car they pick up a black man and his father is incredibly racist and both the kids who are total different generation they're saying, don't you see 
you know, the way you're acting right now is pretty much how the Germans acted for you and us as Jewish people. And he kind of still doesn't even see that in a weird way. He says, no, no, that's different. And and that scene in particular, I thought was just fascinating. Yeah, that was an incredible scene where he says, you can't even compare the two. And you just want to say, don't you get it? Right, right. And that's, I mean, that's obviously what Art was thinking in that moment too. So... I wanted to, we have to talk about the animals. Um, this is a story where he depicts, like you said, all the characters as animals. And he divides them up by races, but really, you know, also just the countries they're from. So there are actually, you know, people from France or this. We do see dogs or Americans. There are a couple more. But I wanted to kind of hear what you thought about um, that and maybe we could just start there. Yeah, I think that um, it was really interesting because they have these... I, to me, I kind of thought, okay, this is sort of what it must have felt like back then where... And kind of how they were maybe like the the Nazi party line where they say, oh, you know, the Poles are one animal, the Nazi... Or the Germans are one animal, the Americans are one animal, but all Jews are the same animal. Yeah. No matter what, if you're an American Jew, if you're a Hungarian Jew, if you're a Polish Jew, German if you're Jew. a German Jew, you're still a mouse. That's right. And I thought that was just like an incredibly powerful statement about how Jews, despite whatever color their skin might be or what nationality they have, are still thought of as Jews. But it's kind of, it really sets the tone at the beginning with an epigraph, um, <clears throat> with a quote from Adolf Hitler, and he says... The Jews are undoubtedly a race, but they are not human. And that kind of tells you Spiegelman's intention with portraying them as animals because he felt like Jews were dehumanized and turned into less than humans. And that quote kind of plainly states it. That was at the beginning of the first graphic novel. These are now collected as one, but they were originally released in two parts. The second part also had a quote and this one is uh, from a piece of Nazi propaganda, and it's, Mickey Mouse is the most miserable ideal ever revealed. Healthy emotions tell every independent young man and every honorable youth that the dirty and filth-covered vermin, the greatest bacteria carrier in the animal kingdom, cannot be the ideal type of animal. Away with the Jewish brutalization of the people, down with Mickey Mouse, wear the swastika cross. That is insane. That's insane. And that, you know, it shows you that not only were Jews animals, but they were the lowest of animals. And that's kind of what I thought Spiegelman was trying to come across with. Yeah. And so there's there's a couple things there that I wanted to talk about. One is the mention of Mickey Mouse in that second quote you talked about. At the end of the day, this is a comic book. And when the first edition came out in 1986, we're going to kind of talk about the bibliography, the history of this comic, how it was made. But graphic novels and comics weren't taken as seriously back then. You know, there was superheroes. And then on the other side of things, there was kind of a standard for Disney, Mickey Mouse, um, Snoopy. Peanuts, you know, all of these kind of caricatures where they portray animals and it and whenever you see it on a cover, it's almost, you know, you approach it in a different way because it's almost like a kid's thing. So, you know, he taking these horrific events and putting them in the language of com of what people know as comics or cartoons. Um, and his father even mentions this is you're going to be a great artist like that guy you know, Walt Disney, you know, the only person that he knows that does any sorts of cartoons who, and all they do is make anthropomorphic animals, basically. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And then, the, you know, the other thing, and there's some criticism about this as I was doing some research, and I, I kind of was sort of struggling with this as I was like trying to read into the themes and what it really meant, because it's it's kind of tricky that you know, when we talk about race and racism, there's different ways of looking at it. And one of those ways is, I think they call it like ethnic racism. And it's a and it's something that people do. And it's certainly something that Hitler did, 
where you divide the races in terms of being superior and and really different from like a um, evolutionary scale. So at the end of the day, we're all homo sapiens. There's only, there really is truly only one race of humans that exists now and it's homo sapiens, but he drew them up as different animals. And I think by leading off with the Hitler quote, it kind of, it, it justifies and shows it through that lens that, that this wasn't chosen by the Jewish people. You know, this was sort of put upon them that they're just thought of as this and, and everybody else is divided up into these different animals. And I just, I, I kept thinking about it the whole time and I kept sort of going back and forth about what I thought it meant. And I'm still kind of thinking it through, but I think it's still just at the end of the day, such a powerful metaphor. Yeah. I think it, it really tells to the division that was created at that time. People trying to like you said, kind of create a, a hierarchy of superiority within humanity. And they need to realize that we are all the same. We're all homo sapiens and kind of touching on what you had said earlier. Um, it's really disarming. I think to see, you know, the mice on the front and you kind of think, Oh, maybe this is going to be like a Disney story or something a little lighthearted. And I, I and it's not obviously, but, I, I think that part of part of doing that makes the subject matter a little more comprehensible because if it were depicted as humans, it's I, it's almost too much to see. Agreed. It, it's, it makes it more palatable. And at the end of the day, we should know the how horrific it is. And even especially when we got into book two, man. Book two, once you're in Auschwitz and Dachau, was really getting tough. And um, it is very hard to just even think about that was less than 100 years ago that that happened. And it really is hard to stomach. It really, truly is. And it does make it a little bit more palatable. I mean, they teach this in schools. Like they use this as part of curriculum for kids to kind of show an example of what it's like. And if this was portrayed in photorealism or, you know, something crazy, it, it would be a whole different thing and not as accessible. And I think this allows it to be read by a wider audience and why it connected in such a large way. And I think that also he's not doing it as a kind of cop out to make it this digestible story, but because he is very self-aware of what he's doing in the book, there are moments where you can see that um, they're actually humans and they're wearing mouse masks. Yeah. You can, you know, you can see some string behind them. So he's very aware of what he's trying to accomplish. And I think he does those little moments to remind you this actually happened. And it's the same with the real photographs that are incorporated throughout there. You see his brother that died, um, Rishu, you see an actual picture of his father at the end. And that kind of really drives it home and makes you realize, yes, this is still a real story. And, and, you know, despite what we said, there are no punches pulled. I mean, the, the things we witness and experience in this are through the eyes of Vladek. He saw certain things and he didn't see certain things. And the things he saw are horrible acts that were committed. And there's almost even more horrific acts that he alludes to that he was lucky enough to truly just not see. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really, <clears throat> it, it was a very, to me, I found the ending very discomforting because it, it was a very abrupt ending. There was no kind of happiness, really any resolution. It was just, this is the story. And I thought that was an incredible statement where I, where it was, his story was done. That was the end of his Holocaust experience. He got to the end, he got reunited with Anya, and that's the end of the story. This is a great piece of work. We could keep going. I thought, let's get into the history. I want to kind of talk about how this was made, um, how this was published. So let's get into it. Mouse. I was listening. I was watching some interviews with Art Spiegelman, and I loved this. He he talked. He's a really quirky guy, and there's this quote I pulled whenever he's talking to a reporter, and everybody asks him those same questions. 
you know, why did you write this? Why mice? And, and whenever people just ask him, what is it? This is his description. I just loved this. It's about a cartoonist trying to understand his father by making a comic book about what he went through. And, you know, it really is two sides of the coin, as you mentioned. It is about his father's experience and it's about the Holocaust, but just as much it's about a, you know, a son trying to get to know his father across this vast, vast generational and experiential divide. Um, so, Mouse was serialized, actually. It was each chapter was published in Raw Magazine, which he edited between 1980 and 1991. So, this was an avant garde magazine that he published with his wife. Um, it was collected in 1986. The first you mentioned that it was done in two books, the first was Mouse with the subtitle my father bleeds history that was published in 1986 and again he didn't know how big this was going to be huge acclaim people waited as he was uh kept publishing it in raw magazine and then in 1992 i mean that's like 11 years of creating this thing um it took him a long time it came out and the second one is called and here my troubles began Whenever I was kind of reading again more about it, Spiegelman wanted this to have a diary type of feel to it because as you can see throughout, as he's uh, listening to his father and drawing it, he uh, wants to make it seem really personal. So he drew the pages on stationery with a fountain pen and typewriter uh, correction fluid. So the typewriter collection, correction fluids, you know, to to undo any mistakes. I just thought that was awesome with just a fountain pen and stationery, just like real crude. And you can see with the art is just, you know, very sketchy, real fast. Um, we'll kind of get into the art in a little bit. The awards, this one, this is, of course, you know, he won the Eisner Award in 92. He won the Harvey Award. Those were for best graphic albums, graphic novels, but unheard of ever before. And still, this is the first and only comic book graphic novel to ever win the Pulitzer Prize. So the Pulitzer, they have a special award for letters. There are only 12 awards for letters that have ever been given out, and this is one of them. It was given out in 1992. I thought that was awesome. And one last bit of tidbit I wanted to share about this is whenever they first categorized this, whenever it was published, they categorized it as fiction. And Spiegelman was pissed because he's like, no, this is all true story. This all happened. But the, there was a one publisher in specific that was like, well, let's march down to Spiegelman's house. And if we knock on the door and a mouse opens the door, then we'll categorize it as nonfiction, and, which is just absolute bullshit. But they eventually changed it. And it's, it's nonfiction book, true, you know, all truly happened. And um, yeah, I, I just thought that working on a book for 11 years, Adam. What a labor of love. And it's, you could tell that this was like his magnum opus. This was his life's work. And it really, you know, it has a feel of kind of a great American novel to me. Someone who set out with this story to tell and they were methodical about undertaking it and they didn't rush it. They took their time and it, it was a really unique, great tale like a yeah. massive subject matter. Matt, so much, uh, so much research had to go into it. You know, I heard him say that, you know, a simple line, like his father said, uh, they marched out the gates. That meant that he had to see how, you know, how many men were marching out the gates. What did the gates look like? Uh, what were they wearing? Were they hunched? How many guards were there? Just every panel had to be so meticulously researched because he wanted to be so accurate. I thought that was fascinating. All right, Adam, best lines. This is the segment where we uh, go through the written dialogue or, um, you know, the written out parts of this, and we're going to talk about our favorites. So, Adam, why don't you lead us off with your best lines? I'll kick it off with a line from Vladek to Anya. This is very early in the story. Um, and he's just kind of talking about resiliency uh, because she wants to give up. But he says, to die, it's easy. But you have to struggle for life. 
And that would just be an incredible line of foreshadowing um, to show how hard they would have to fight just to stay alive, which is something that we all just completely take for granted. Someone who's never experienced wartime, never been afraid for their life on a daily basis. I can't imagine just dedicating every ounce of my being to simply surviving. And it, it really does show his father's strength and really mode like his father's love for Anya was so powerful. And that was something that really hit me in this read through as well is how much he cared for her and thought of her and, um, dedicated, you know, sacrifice to really make sure that she was prepared for during this time or cared for. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that that was probably a, you know, a serious driving force in keeping him alive, keeping his will, and um, and he actually says to follow that up later, and he says, "You'll see that we'll that together we'll survive." What do you got? All right, this is one I have. Whenever he first is in a camp, I think he's you know serving in the military. I can't quite remember. It's on page fifty-five, but the line is, "It was a terrible cold that autumn. All over Europe, it was so freezing that birds fell from trees," and. That was one that I loved because it showed the kind of humor of his father. You know, his father has English. He's, he speaks English as a second language. So he kind of interprets the world um, in kind of funny ways. And that was just a line that I was like, is that a saying? Is that an expression that people say? But I love that idea. And it really shows just like how miserable cold it would be that birds would just fall out of trees in death because it was so cold. What a vivid picture. The next one I got is on page 161, and it's Vladik talking to Artie, and he has just told Art that he destroyed Anya's journals that she had kept while she was a prisoner. And Artie pretty much just loses it on him. He calls his dad a murderer, asking him how he could do such a thing, and Vladik's trying to explain that he was depressed and he couldn't take anything that reminded him of that era. And when he found the journals, he destroyed them. Art kind of calms down a little bit and they, you know, say their goodbyes as Art turns to leave. And as he's walking away to himself, he says again, murderer. And I just thought that was such a uh, soul bearing moment that Art was depicting of this, this feeling of, you know, anger and frustration that he must have had toward his father right there. And there was nothing that he could do to, you know, kind of sympathize with him in that moment because his own emotions were taking over. But if he just stepped back, like the way we're able to do and look at it from this third person perspective, he would see how much pain his father was in and that he had, they were sharing the same pain. It, it really is soul bearing. Like you said, it just shows you know, their interactions with each other are so tense and fraught and, you know, we've been there, but just again, that, that divide between experiences is so crazy. Um, my next one is on page 176 in the collected edition. And it's as Artie and Francois are driving in a car together and he's kind of having an existential crisis as he's thinking about the book and his father, whose health is waning, and and he says uh, the following as he's kind of talking about him creating the book. He says, there's so much I'll never be able to understand or visualize. I mean, reality is just too complex for comics. So much has to be left out or distorted. And Francois says, just keep it honest, honey. And he says, see what I mean? In real life, you'd never have let me talk this long without interrupting. <laughs> And that line is just the kind of meta commentary on he's writing the comic medium. He's able to reflect on his own reflections as he's drawing it. And I, it was just, you know, he makes a very kind of serious point and then puts a little joke at the end of it um, to add some levity. And I just love that. Yeah. Nice little bit of, of, uh, of humor to undercut this incredibly serious moment. And well, to follow that up, my last quote is actually from the same page, 176, and it's just a few panels earlier. 
And he's talking to Francois about the same thing. And he says, I feel so inadequate trying to reconstruct a reality that was worse than my darkest dreams. And to me, I found this incredibly relatable because the horrors of the Holocaust are something that I still have trouble comprehending. And like you said, the fact that this was less than 100 years ago, that this is considered, you know, in the modern era of humanity, that people were capable of this kind of horror is hard to process. And trying to retell that with the weight that Art had at that time, knowing that not only is this a huge story about his people, but also his father personally, his mother. I just I can't imagine that. And and I mean that line is so poetic. It just it's it's beautiful the way it's written. My last line um, is whenever Vladik is another, he's telling one of his many exploits where he he usually kind of finds a confidant, a buddy within whatever world he's in, and here he, there's a Polish man that he's uh, that helps him in some way, and he gives him some eggs. And um, as a one-off line to his son, he says, if you want to live, it's good to be friendly. And I thought that just spoke to sort of the resourcefulness of his father and just the fatherly aspect of kind of always giving advice to your son and always trying to say, you know, here's what I've learned in my time, you know, as a human being on this world. And Vladek has lived through some of the craziest times as a human being in this world. So I, I just, just, it always helps to be friendly. I love that. It's a good note. All right, Adam. All right, Blaine. We're going to move right along here. This segment is called, They're the Best at What They Do. I'm going to give you an overview of Art Spiegelman, um, and let's get straight into it. Influences. Art Spiegelman grew up reading Mad Magazine. He was obsessed. So Harvey Kurtzman is the main writer, editor of Mad Magazine. And it, if you don't know Mad Magazine or have gotten into it, because it's not as popular now as I think it was with kids back in the day. It's comics mostly, but really satirical, funny look at the world. So it explores a lot of issues and pop culture going on, but it really takes a stab at them. And um, and I think that kind of quick wit will lead him into the sort of rest of his career here. But other influences, Will Eisner, who is, you know, one of the fathers of comics. Then this is one that I had never heard of, but I wanted to mention it for anybody out there who's, um, you know, looking for other stuff like this. It's called Binky Brown Meets the Holy Virgin Mary, and it's by Justin Brown. And a lot of comic writers cite this as one of the first autobiographical works in comics. And it deals with the author who has OCD and his relationship with the Catholic faith. So it's about himself and dealing very, again, soul-bearing. And I and, and Art Spiegelman again and again cites that, which I had never even heard of until I was looking it up, really being a huge influence on this. Um, the next couple influences is woodcut novels, which are, you know, woodcut art is very high contrast. It's like the printed. And obviously this is just pure black and white heavy inks. So there's a lot of contrast in this. And then lastly, Franz Kafka, you know, kind of that nihilistic um, sort of writing style. Um, when we get into his bibliography, his works, he actually was an illustrator starting at 15 years old. And as he kind of grew up, he got into the underground culture, started, you know, doing some LSD, and he got into underground comics, comics with an X. Adam, what are underground comics? Well, I'm glad you asked me that, Blaine. Underground comics was essentially the first indie comic scene. Um, it developed in the 1960s in San Francisco as a response to the censorship of the Comics Code Authority. And it was heavily associated with the counterculture movement that was going on at the same time, often featuring subjects like drug use, left-wing politics, rock and roll, free love, you know, all the good stuff. And the X, because it's comics with an X, was really indicative of the style because a lot of the works had X-rated content, you know. It kind of was originally, they say the earliest origin is Tijuana Bibles, where they would basically take Disney cartoons and Disney comic strips and make them into X-rated stories and 
draw boobies and butts and penises and stuff. <laughs> um, and in the underground comics movement, Robert Crumb is kind of the poster boy with Fritz the Cat became his big hit. And then eventually that became adapted into a film and started to, you know, the whole movement exploded and all these different artists were influenced in the 70s and moving on where they say Lord of the Rings was influenced by underground comics. Obviously, Fritz the Cat and Ralph Bakshi's whole thing was really influenced uh, by underground comics and the movement. And it kind of just was always this punk comic thing. I love that's a killer description. And Art Spiegelman was right in the middle of it with his wife. And um, she, I, I mentioned her. She, she appears in the comic uh, obviously, but she is the editor, um, co-editor with Art Spiegelman of Arcade Magazine and then Raw Magazine. And I mentioned Raw Magazine is where um, Mouse was serialized. So they both did that. And there's a lot of creators that hopefully we'll get to in future Comic Club episodes. Charles Byrne, who did Black Hole, was first featured there. Chris Ware, who uh, was first featured there, and he looked up to Art Spiegelman as well. So... Again, we got into Mouse. That was published in 1986 and 1992. Adam, did you know this? Garbage Pail Kids, created by Art Spiegelman. Man, when I was doing a little research, I read that just a few hours ago, and it blew my mind. Seriously. So, like I mentioned, he's a... Um, illustrator since he was a little kid and tops cards i guess they got him to you know do artwork as a freelance illustrator and he came up with the garbage pail kids which became a phenomenon of its own and i had no idea huge phenomenon and it makes so much sense with his ties to the underground comic scene absolutely raw like that it just all made sense right there it it made it clicked yeah yeah really clicks in the early 90s he did covers for the new yorker and both art and his wife lived in new york during 9-11, whenever the World Trade Centers fell. And his last piece of work that he created was a graphic novel called In the Shadow of No Towers. It also came out in 2001. And, you know, Art Spiegelman is one of these guys who is very outspoken. They're always, he's he's kind of involves himself in very... Um, and kind of political issues and really gets his opinion out there. And he always pops up from time to time. In fact, there's an article that I just read and I had heard about it even before we were doing this, where he was going to write an intro for Marvel's The Golden Age of Comics, uh, this new series that was going to be produced. And in it, he's talking about the Golden Age of Comics and he mentions the Red Skull and he talks about Golden Age and the rise of fascism. And he talks about the Red Skull back then in the 40s with Nazism. And he talks about the Orange Skull today, who's now living in the White House. And Marvel Comics said, bro, um, can you cut the whole Orange Skull thing? We try to be apolitical, you know, in our books. We don't know if we want this intro in there. Or, Or just cut that line. No biggie. And he said, it is a biggie, and I'm pulling my intro. I'm not publishing it, and later it was published in The Guardian. Check that article out if you have interest in the golden age of Marvel superhero comics. But it just shows his sort of relentless viewpoints, and he will he doesn't back down, and that's something I love about him. Unflinching artistic integrity. That's right. Let's go into our favorite segment, the Art of War, the Art Awards, where we like to break down our favorite panels, our favorite pages, and talk about the art we love most. Adam, why don't you kick it off? I will kick it off. I've got a, a panel on page 59, and this is going to lead right in very well from the last segment. This is going to get my award for most comics with an X panel. And uh, basically what's happening is Vladek is in the hospital right now and he's being um overseen by a doctor practitioner and it's got just this very interesting perspective where he looks really tiny lying in a bed and the doctor is this huge kind of towering figure with this giant hand reaching out he's actually coming out of the panel um and to me it just felt like something that was straight from that 70s era kind of a odd perspective just very sort of the artist's interpretation of the moment i love that and you know that's something i kind of wanted to talk about later but i maybe we can get into it right now 
Um, and I, I, I love that you called that piece out. And that is something I'm fascinated with in art, in movies, in comics, is whenever there's a little bit of mysticism or magic in in the medium itself. So there's a couple points I identified, and this is one of them where it's almost like a divine intervention or something happens. And there he's having a dream, that exact panel you're talking about, where it, it's like, don't worry, my child, you will come out of this place free on the day of Parshish Truma. I'm sorry if I butchered that um, Jewish day. And um, am I on the right page, Adam? 59? And there's that moment. There's another moment later in Auschwitz when there's a Polish priest who predicts that he's going to come out of it as well. And, and then at the very end, whenever Anya is back in their hometown, she visits a gypsy who predicts exactly how uh, his uh, her husband is going to return to him. And I just kind of thought those moments of Again, the magical, the mystic, the divine was was an interesting thing in an otherwise like pretty cut and dry story. My art award is on page 127, and I give this the art award for most affecting symbolic panel. And it's whenever Vladik and Anya cannot find where to go and they're um, thrust away from this house they're staying in the moment. And the panel says, Anya and I didn't have anywhere to go. And they're walking, and it says, We walked in the direction of our hometown, but where to go? And as they're walking, there are two figures lonely walking around a road, and it is a very high angle depiction of a of a road systems, and the roads, the crossroads form a cross. And then the cross breaks and forms the swastika, and it kind of just shows that it's all closing in on them. And no matter where they go during this time, they're going to be um, a part of, you know, this rolling force of Nazis, and which is going to find them. What a powerful image. My next one is a little bit before that. It's on page 104. And this is actually... Um, I believe it's an excerpt from an earlier work of Art Spiegelman's about his mother's death. Um, she committed suicide when he was an adult, and it's called Prisoner on the Hell Planet. And the award that I'm going to give to, the there's a series of three panels on the bottom of 104. I'm going to give those the Fritz Lang Award for German Expressionism. Yeah, a little bit of a deep cut, but if you don't know, it's kind of like my film nerd uh, coming out, but basically German expressionism was this huge film movement in like, the twenties. And, uh, it was known for kind of like this anti-realism where they would use insane geometrically absurd angles and sets that didn't really make sense. It was largely about themes of insanity and betrayal. And, uh, this is just straight out of German expressionism. I thought it was incredible. That whole segment, whenever, they're reading Prisoner on the Hell Planet. I love that they included that in this comic. And I do not remember that on my first read through. And that is fascinating. That piece was was nuts. Really, really intense part of the story. Very intense. My next art award is on page 210. And it is called the Playing with Memories Award. And... There's this really kind of sad moment. I mean, there's a million sad moments in this book. But while they're lined up in Auschwitz, there is this one, he's portrayed as a mouse. There's this one prisoner in particular who insists that he is a, a German soldier. And he says, I have medals. And he pleads every day to the German soldiers. He says, I am a German soldier. Uh, my son is a German soldier. I'm a German just like you. And... um Unfortunately, I mean, he gets killed. They 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 take him out. But there's two panels back to back. And one, it is where he is a mouse. And then in the next one, he is portrayed as a cat, as a German. And he says, was he really, was he really German, father? He says, who knows? He They don't know. So it's kind of one of these um, things where his father is, you know, he's having to recollect all these things that happened in the past. And it just kind of shows again that animals that they they look alike. How can you actually know um, sort of the 
ethnicity of these people. And I love those, uh, the dichotomy there. Yeah, that was incredible. My last art award is on page 201. Basically, we see the author working at his draft board. He's got a mouse mask on, so we can tell that this is a human who's putting on a mouse mask to tell the story ostensibly. And at the bottom of the page, it shows kind of a wide view of him at his drafting board, and he's atop a pile of dead mice. And that is actually going to be my award for most meta moment, um, because he's talking about the struggle that he's having as an author to tell this story. And he's sitting atop this pile of dead bodies. And I think that's basically the, uh, the metaphor for him achieving his success on the backs of all the Holocaust victims and how hard that is to come to terms with um, as not only an artist, but as a Jew, someone who wants to tell your people's story, but knowing that it's going to lead to your own fame and success. And in that, he mentions how people want to adapt it into TV or movies, and he doesn't want to. And he just says that he's feeling depressed. And at the very end, there's a speech bubble that says, all right, Mr. Spiegelman, we're ready to shoot. And it's just kind of this this really soul-bearing moment of him letting you know how hard it was for him to work through this work of art. He says it many times how guilty it is, how guilty he feels. But this is the moment where he kind of shows it you know, in the art. And I love, I love that. It's, it's sad. It's, you know, but it's so true the way he feels. He's being so honest there. I love that. My last panel, my last art award, this is going to wrap it up. This is on page 224. And throughout this, especially towards the end, I loved whenever there were diagrams and maps and um, these illustrations of what things looked like. I'm going to call this the most economical panel because it is the currency of what it was like in there. So most economical panel. So it it shows, again, the diagrams of what they're doing. One day's bread is equal to three cigarettes. 200 cigarettes is equal to one bottle of vodka. And he could get Anya moved from Birkenau over to Auschwitz if he paid the Germans one bottle of vodka, and a hundred cigarettes, which means he would have to go hungry for a ton of days. And it just really shows his dedication. And I wanted to call out those kind of diagram panels that uh, Spiegelman draws throughout the course of this book. Yeah, that's great. That really puts it into real world, real life terms of how he had to sacrifice, you know, specifically to do this one task. Well, good art awards, Blaine. Let's take a very, very brief stroll down Adaptation Alley. Let's do it. This is going to be quick, so keep up with me. Basically, this has never been adapted. Art Spiegelman has said very explicitly that he never wants it adapted. He even told his children, I read an article where he's talking about telling his kids um, to remember that for when he's just a gif, which is pretty funny. Uh, But I don't know if it will ever see it adapted. I think some things are meant to exist in the medium they were created and they should just be left alone. And this is one of those great examples. Agreed. That was Adaptation Alley. I've got another new segment for you, Blaine. This one, I'm going to call it Dear Old Dad. And (laughs) basically, you know, father-son stories. You're a father, so you can relate to the father aspect. But father-son stories are, you know, well-worn territory, and we've got some great, great stories in the pop culture canon. I wanted to just fire off a few. You can tell me your thoughts on them. Love it, hate it, skip it. Don't be afraid to hit the skip button if you don't have anything to say. I'm excited. I'm excited. I hope I've seen it. I hope you've seen it too. Okay, the first one, I'll give you an easy one. Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo. Um beautiful story about a father's unrelenting drive to reconnect with his son, learning along the way to not be so overprotective because sometimes you just have to let the son grow up on their own. Great story. Mm, What a message. What a message to take away from that. Parents, hope you're listening. 
<laughs> okay, next one. Sticking with the nautical aspect, big okay. fish. Oh man, this is one I've been meaning to revisit, and I, I'm gonna have to hit the skip button because I don't have a ton to speak on in terms of the father-son aspect. I remember loving this movie, but again, it's on the revisit list. You should definitely revisit that. Big Fish is a great, similar story of a son trying to understand his father and his father's life when he's only ever heard stories about it. And so he gets it straight from the horse's mouth, straight from the dad's mouth. Um, Big Fish, definitely worth the revisit. Okay, next up, The Godfather. Oh, man. Listen, I have a weird relationship with The Godfather. Let me hear it. It's that I've only seen it for the first time probably like four years ago. And I know we, maybe less, we all have those movies that are like, they loom so large and or movies or books or whatever it is, because everybody says it's agreed upon to be one of the greatest works of art in the entire world. Um, I don't have a great take on The Godfather other than, you know, I watched it in this beautiful old theater. I remember the moment um, whenever The Godfather, you know, the actor's name is not coming to me. He Marlon Brando. Uh, died, Marlon, duh, Marlon Brando. He dies um, whenever he's watching his granddaughter amongst like the garden. And I just, that moment sticks out most to me. Um, but yes, it's, you know, filling your father's shoes and stepping into the role you were destined for that. It, that is a great story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love the Godfather. Those movies are works of art that are, like you say, kind of so hyped up can almost never live up to your expectations and Godfather, especially because that one is regularly called the best film ever made. So when you've heard that you kind of. It's hard to make it happen. Meet it, yeah. It's hard to meet it on its own terms and and really understand because it's also a super old movie. I, I love old films, but yeah, yeah. You know, you have to take into account the historical context, like what was happening in Hollywood at the time, the technical aspects of it. There's there's a lot that could be said. But moving on, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, that's a great one. Okay, I'm a huge Indiana Jones fan. I would say Raiders of the Lost Ark is my favorite, followed very closely by The Last Crusade. It's almost hard to pick between the two, and I feel like you got to give it to Raiders because it was the first one, and it's like the perfect Indy Jones. But if there's a second perfect Indy Jones, like, this is it. And casting Sean Connery as the father is just like chef's kiss the perfect thing, you know, he has kind of the legacy of, you know, that old swashbuckling hero. Um, it's just perfect. And I, and their banter back and forth, everything about their relationship is fantastic. And I love that they introduced the father in the last Indiana Jones movie of, of right. the original trilogy. Cause it's like, but it feels like that's how it was all along. Like it may, it recontextualizes the rest of it. Yeah. You think, oh man, he's really been just trying to follow in his father's footsteps this entire yeah. time. Yeah. How did Love we not it. know? Great pick. Last one in the dear old dad, the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. Oh gosh. This is ranks upon my favorite Wes Anderson movies. Uh, you probably know that. This is just one that I revisit time and time again. And, you know, there's a characterization in Wes Anderson movies, and I didn't even think about it. You know, I was like, what, what is Adam going to choose? But of bad fathers in Wes Anderson movies. Uh, yeah, and, bad dads. Bad dads. There's always kind of like a dad who, you know, is not there for them or, um, you know, for whatever reason isn't there. And I think this is one where... Again, it, it's the same um, kind of storyline as Mouse, where it's a son trying to reconnect with his father and realizing that maybe the father isn't this sort of heroic figure as he was portrayed in his memories as a child. And it's, and it's really learning to meet the real person. And I think that's something that we all kind of do as we grow up as a son and um, daughters out there. Um, Whenever you become an adult, you think of your parents in different ways because you understand more what it's like to be an adult and how young they possibly were 
whenever you were very, very young and when they had you and kind of understanding the difficulties that they went through. And it kind of makes you rethink a lot of things. And that's what Life Aquatic explores in a really big way. I love that pick. Beautiful. So well said. I love hearing from that perspective. I don't have kids. I'm not a dad, but you do. So you know, and now you know, I'm sure you have this a way better um, appreciation for your dad. hundred percent. That was dear old dads, Adam. I love it. Great new segment. Great new segment. Um, that's going to about wrap it up. I wanted to um, hit us with some closing thoughts. Adam, do you have any closing thoughts to wrap this baby up? I'll just say that this wildly exceeded any expectations that I had for it. This is immediately one of the greatest graphic novels and probably works of art that I've ever read. Um, I had no idea it would be such a personal story from the author uh, so closely tied to his experience with not only, you know, understanding and um, kind of processing the Holocaust, but his relationship with his father and how he fits into that world. And it just really, uh, it really hit me hard. And I feel like it's something that'll stick with me for a long time. Couldn't agree more. I think in our normal lives, it can kind of be easy to find the entertainment that is enjoyable, find the kind of entertainment that excites us and, um, and you know, we have interest in. And I think going down this dark past of, of us as a human race is needed every once in a while to really make sure I mean again this is a this is a piece of history and you know exploring history and learning from it is something that we all need to do time and time again and then like you said just the personal aspect of it by the author really putting themselves in the book in the work and being vulnerable is just what really makes this so utterly powerful and differentiates itself from other works like it. So everybody, that was Mouse. Hope you enjoyed this month's Comic Club. That's all we have this time. Adam? Comic Club out. Comic Club is brought to you from Upper Esh Media. This episode was edited by Adam J. Cook. Our intro and outro music is by Tiger Cup. Katie Livingston at Living Kate designed our logo. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on social at Comic Club Podcast, and join our Facebook group to continue the conversation online. Remember, everyone, read more comics. Comic Club.